We are this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, towards the end of the chapter, and then we'll be making our way into uh, chapter 10. But before we read it, I just got to state the miracle, and that's that you came back. This is amazing. Uh, Given the message last week, a, a, a heavy, heavy sermon on death, I thought I might be preaching to empty chairs in the staff this morning. So thank you for coming back. And in all seriousness, um, thank you for being a church that, that loves God and is committed to um, His Word. You are uh, people who time and time and time again, as we work our way through books of the Bible, when we come to texts that would be easier to skip because they confront and challenge us in some difficult area of life, you wrestle with it, you listen to what God has to say in it, You might take some time to really chew on it, but what I've seen over the years again and again and again is that we are um, a church that has chosen to trust and obey God. We're a a church that sits under God's Word rather than making ourselves the authority. And that makes uh, this a really special group of people. Not every church is like that. And let's not take it for granted. It is a wonderful thing to be part of a church where people will listen to everything God says and then seek to live in light of it by means of His Spirit. So thank you for that. Such an encouragement to me. Uh, We'll need to keep in mind today that everything God says is true because uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And everything God says is good because God is intrinsically good and He does good and He only has good for us in mind. So we'll grapple with a few things today that are, that are complicated, but not near as much as last week. But as we do so, remember that everything God says is good and everything God says is true. So look with me, if you would, at verse 11 of chapter 9. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Who's encouraged you came to church today? Well, uh, what is up with this paragraph? Here's essentially what's being spoken of. The preacher here is talking again about death. But don't panic. The whole passage is not about death. So this won't be a sermon from beginning to end about the brevity of life. But it does begin that way. And so a quick review in case you missed last week. We are all going to die. Sooner or later, we will breathe our last breath if Jesus doesn't return first. And we saw from the rest of chapter 9 that death is severe and that death is sure. And the more we acknowledge that as fact, the more we live in light of the fact that one day we will die, the better our lives will actually be between now and then. I know that might seem counterintuitive, But the more aware you are of your mortality, the more you'll make the most of life while you have it. 
And so the passage last week told us to enjoy life. Since death is severe and sure, thoroughly enjoy the life God gives you. It gave us commands like if you're married, enjoy your marriage. And if you eat or drink, and you do, then eat and drink with joy. Gather friends around. Get full not only on the food, but with gratitude for what God's given you. And work hard. Work with all your might. And enjoy the labor that God has set before you. Now, as we turn to verses 11 and following, the preacher, though, realizes as he's moved from thinking about death to, therefore, why we should enjoy life because we won't have it all that long, then he begins to renumerate in his mind on the reasons why that enjoyment can be difficult. Why is it sometimes hard to find joy in life? Well, that's what verses 11 and 12 are telling us. Remember that this is a book that describes truth to us through the observations and experiences of somebody who was seeking through means of their own experience to find out what is the meaning of life. And so its lessons to us come in waves. They tend to batter us around. And we tend to get tossed about from one thing to the next very often throughout the pattern of the book. And so it works that way because that's how life works, isn't it? Have you felt battered around recently by something that came into your life that you weren't expecting? Everything was going fine, and then a wave came along and knocked you over. The preacher is saying, I thought about death and how sure and severe it is, and that made me realize how much I should enjoy life. But enjoying life is hard because sometimes life doesn't work out like we thought it would. Sometimes life, in fact, doesn't work out as, at least in our minds, it ought to work. So how do we deal with that? How do we learn to enjoy life when the very things through which we are told to enjoy life are frustrating and difficult? Well, what we need is some all-encompassing truths. What we need is a deep relationship with God. What we need is a profound commitment to each other. If we're to learn how to be, not, how to be tossed to and fro and yet not be shaken up by it, then we must learn how to deal with these successive waves of disappointment that come in life. At this point in chapter 9, the preacher hasn't yet reached the point of telling us the conclusion he reached about what the meaning of life is. He holds that until the very end. And so we're not given the full picture yet. But along the way, he is telling us things that help us, sort of part partial answers until we get to the end. And today he's going to do that. He's going to tell us as he grabs us by the hand and guides us through his own journey how to deal with the fact that some things in life are hard to enjoy because they don't work like they're supposed to. In a fallen world, for example, 
You can work really hard at your job. You can do everything you are supposed to do. You can do it the right way. You can do it with diligence. And it can all be undone in a moment by an unthoughtful boss who doesn't know what he or she is doing and undoes what you just did. They can take what you spent three months developing and with one email, render it all seemingly meaninglessness, meaningless. Have you experienced that? It's okay to say yes. That makes work hard to enjoy, doesn't it? Uh, or let's, there's a lot of students in the room. You can take a course and study the entire semester only to get to the end and take the final and there be some major issue that the teacher never brought up and wasn't in your reading. And your whole grade can be wrecked because of it. That will make any other class you have with that teacher hard to enjoy, won't it? You shouldn't have a test like that. And you shouldn't have a boss who undoes the good work that you've set out to do. But these are realities of life in a fallen world. It feels like so many things, and especially death, are not in the hand of God, but they're in time and chance. Those are the words in the passage we just read. Now, that's not actually true. God does hold all things. He is in control. Nothing happens that catches him by surprise. But it sure doesn't feel like it all the time. It feels as though it doesn't matter how hard you work, that in the end, everything is just about time and chance. And so how does this text help us? Well, the preacher is going to turn from that thought to what we need in order to live in light of the fact that that's true. You see, we need something that will help us navigate life in a complex world full of disappointments and hardships and difficulties in which we can set out by God's grace to do the right thing with the right motives and to, and to enjoy them. And yet they can be frustrated again and again and again and again because life doesn't work like it ought to sometimes. Are you with me? All right. So what we need is we need a guide to enjoyment. We need a, a tutor to direct us away from misery. We need something to help us navigate life, a life that we're supposed to enjoy, but a life that's frustrated by things not working like they should. What we need is wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom is how you use knowledge. Wisdom is how you apply what you know to the complex situations in life that you don't have a set of rules for. Wisdom is skill for everyday living. And it is to wisdom we will now turn with an example. Look at verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, 
building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Let's stop there for a minute. The preacher turns to an example that is far from our own experience, but his, his reason for doing so is that it spoke directly to the people of his day. And so, just imagine that you live in a small city surrounded by uh, a wall, and that wall is your principal means of protection. And so, if an army comes against you, you draw the bridge or close the gates, and then you count on those walls to save you. But what an army would do is come, in particular if they were a large army like this one, they would surround the entire city. They would suffocate it so that no food or water could go in, and then they would slowly squeeze people. They would squeeze them by casting arrows in that were on fire, trying to burn the place down. They would set ladders up and try to climb in and go over. They would shoot things over the wall, and eventually, if that other army was bigger, almost always they would win. And so, you're in this tiny, tiny, tiny city in which there are very few people to fight, and it looks certain that your city's going to fall and that you're all going to die. Can you imagine what that would be like? That would be horrible. And yet, in this story, victory did not go to the strong. It went to the wise. Somehow, we're not told how one man with few resources used wisdom in order to help the city survive. The point is, wisdom is incredibly valuable. Wisdom can do what nothing else can do. Wisdom can look at a situation, assess it from every angle, and then figure out the best course of action. Wisdom can rescue you and me out of so many of the messes we find ourselves in. But while wisdom is valuable, it's also vulnerable. It's vulnerable for the reason the rest of verse 5 tells us or gives us an example of. Verse 15, it says, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So this man somehow helped rescue the city, but because he was not in a position of power, because he was just a poor man, then just as quickly as he saved the city was he forgotten, and then no one listened to him in an ongoing way. That is an example of what we might call folly. Verse 17 says, The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. Can I get an amen? So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Well, that imagery is really strange to us, but that's just a preview. There's going to be a whole bunch more of it. 
as we work our way through chapter 10. The point, though, is clear. Being wise beats being mighty. Wise words spoken in a wise way beats the shouts of the powerful but foolish people. You see, with wisdom, there's incredible power for good and for joy. But there is a challenge even with wisdom because wisdom is susceptible to just one drop of folly, a little bit of unwise words or thinking or acting can undo much more wisdom. Folly can undo in a moment what wisdom took a lifetime to build. That's what the dead flies in chapter 10 verse 1 are about. Now, in the, in the ancient world, perfume was, was much more like what today we would call uh, ointment or lotion. And so here's the picture. I, I imagine you are a perfumer and you are mixing up your, I don't know if they stirred it like this, but just imagine with me. You're, you're stirring up your, uh, not your witch's brew, but your smelly lotion. And then it's lunchtime. And in a rush, instead of covering up your lotion, you rush out, enjoy your 30-minute lunch, and come back. And because you didn't cover it, now it's got a few stinky dead flies on the top. Now, maybe you're thinking, no big deal, just scrape those off. But no one would be buying your perfume if you did that kind of thing, all right? So the picture is a little few dead flies spoil the entire thing. They ruin all the work that you've put in. Much wisdom can be undone by a little folly. So we've got to be careful to guard wisdom, to treasure wisdom, to resist folly. And that's what the rest of our passage this morning is going to be about. These are concepts we don't talk much about. And so let me see if I can help explain what's going on. Church, we need uh, multiple handles in order to be able to carry out our duties with joy in the stuff of everyday life. One set of handles are the handles we normally think of when we think of God's Word. They're the handles of right and wrong, of sin versus not sin. These handles, I mean, I mean what is true because it's commanded by God, and what is wrong or false because God says it misses the mark. The Bible is extremely helpful to us because we're not left to wonder what does God expect? What will be good for us versus what's destructive? The Scriptures tell us every command in the Bible is for our good. And so those handles are really helpful because we know what to do and what not to do in the cases where God gives us commands. But did you realize that most situations you will face this coming week will be situations where you've got to make a decision about to do or not to do something in which you don't have an explicit command or rule for. The Bible was never intended to be 
comprehensive in the sense that it lists everything you must do in every single situation. It can't possibly do that. And so what the Bible does give us in addition to commands is it gives us another set of handles. Those handles are the handles of wisdom and folly. It tells us these are the kinds of things that are wise. These are the practical ways to go about living daily life when the rules don't directly apply. And these are the, these are the foolish things to avoid. These are examples of what you must avoid, what's foolish, what'll get you into trouble. These handles, of course, are more difficult to grasp because wisdom is not law. Law is black and white. Wisdom often deals with stuff that exists in the gray areas, and that's most of life. So much of life is lived in the complex space where we don't have direct commandments from God. Instead, what we need is a growing life of wisdom. We must learn to differentiate between what's sensible and what's foolish because even a little tiny bit of folly mixed in with a lot of wisdom is going to cause tremendous problems in your life. Maybe some examples. Uh, you could, at the start of your freshman year of high school, decide, I'm going to go on all the way and get a PhD that will set me off into the best field I could possibly ever dream of having. And so you could work every day all the way through high school. You could apply to the college of your dreams and get accepted. You could use your undergraduate not to horse around, but to make straight A's and build relationships with the professors that you'll need in order to get into the best graduate program. You can get into that graduate program and do extremely well. But if in your dissertation you plagiarize one sentence, then you will undo everything you spent all those years doing. Now, whether it should be that way or not doesn't matter. That's the way it is. A little bit of folly can undo lots and lots and lots of wisdom. Or another example, if you're married, you can be faithful to your husband or wife for decades. You can resist temptations, you can cultivate and treasure a very close relationship, but with one night of infidelity, one 10, 15, 20, 30 minute span of time, you can undo what took decades to build. A little bit of folly destroys an awful lot of wisdom. Jesus himself recognized how important wisdom is. In the book of Matthew, verse chapter 10, he said, See, I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise. The scripture Josh had us read together corporately told us that Jesus became to us wisdom from God. And so if we're going to be people who are wise, 
then we need to be people who are walking closely with Jesus Christ, letting Him guide our decision-making as we listen to the Spirit and help each other navigate the complicated world we live in. We need consistent growth in wisdom so that we avoid even a little folly. And so what the rest of chapter 10 does is set out for us tidbits of proverbial wisdom. Now, the book of Proverbs is full of these. It's a, it's a, it's a book called Proverbs because it's full of Proverbs. I went to a lot of years of seminary to understand that. Uh, in, in Ecclesiastes, we don't have lots and lots and lots and lots of them gathered together except here in chapter 10. And how connected these are to each other is up for debate. But what binds them together is that string of thought that I've shown you. Everybody's going to die. And so learn to enjoy life and recognize how precious it is and make the most of it and live with joy enthusiastically. But as you're doing so, be aware that life is frustrating and things don't always work out like they ought to, and therefore what we need is wisdom because there's going to be lots of temptations toward folly, and just a little bit of folly does a whole lot of bad. We might summarize chapter 10 this way, since even a little folly can be disastrous, use wisdom in all areas of life. Use wisdom in all areas of life. Now, we're going to read all of chapter 10 in the remaining time that we have together, but there's no possible way you would be up for staying long enough for me to try to explain every single sentence. There's not that kind of time. But what Proverbs are probably best, uh, how Proverbs are best ascertained is not so much reading a whole long section of them, and then you just instantly understand them. Instead, you need to take an individual proverb, write it down, stick it in your pocket. All through the day when you have a brief moment, take it out, read it again, and consider in what way does this help me understand wisdom? Or in what way does this help me understand folly? And so what I wanted to do this morning, instead of trying to explain every proverb, which I think would be dreadfully boring, actually. Instead, I want to tell you, this is what this is in chapter 10. And this is how it fits into the rest of the book. And on your own time, perhaps at the dinner table with your family or with your roommate, perhaps as you're walking to class this week, perhaps instead of, something else you might do that you know will lead you to folly. Instead, take one of these Proverbs and think more about it. And so as we read them, I want to encourage you, maybe take note of some that you want to think more about, that you can go back to and spend more time on and prayerfully consider what they mean. Now look with me, if you would, at verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now, that is not about politics, so hold your horses. Uh, Verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. 
And he says to everyone that he's a fool. Brothers and sisters, when we seek to use wisdom and folly, it is imperative that we understand that those who are inclined toward the right, this is a Jewish way of speaking, they're inclined towards the right, they're inclined towards things that are good, beneficial, following the one who's honorable and in power, whereas those who are fools are inclined to the left, meaning they're inclined towards what's bad, what's dishonorable. Those are polar opposites. And if you live long enough, you will show yourself to be a generally wise person or a generally unwise person. You may not see it, but everybody else will. Because the two are very distinct from each other. Let me try to give you an example to illustrate what I mean. Let's say you're in a serious dating relationship that you expect is going to end in marriage. The dating will give way to engagement. The engagement will give way to marriage. And you're trying to think about that marriage. And you like each other. That should be a prerequisite. But just to be clear, there's an attraction to one another. The wise person would ask this question, or something like it. How can we best keep our sexual passions from overtaking our spiritual commitments? The foolish person would ask, how far is too far? Those two questions may in some way sound similar, but do you hear how one leads to wisdom? One leads to making wise decisions that are good, and the other leads to disaster? The one is merely asking, how can I get close, as close as possible to destroying this? While the other is asking, what's prudent? What's best? What would best show honor and respect? That's the way wisdom and folly work. The one inclines you to the right, the other inclines you to the left. And both of those different inclinations, the passage say, says, originate from the heart. Do you see that? They come from the heart. Wisdom and folly, you see, are not matters of intellect. They're not so much here in your mind, but here in your heart. Now, when the Bible uses the word heart, it's not talking about that muscle that pumps blood throughout your body and keeps you alive. The Scriptures, when they use the word heart, they're talking about the, the core of your being. They're talking about the steering wheel of your soul. They're talking about the seat of your emotions. They're talking about the, the internal core that drives what you do. That's the heart. So the heart then that inclines someone to the right or to the left, what that means is it's telling us being wise versus being foolish is not principally a matter of intelligence, but of morality. If we would become wise people, it will happen only because we've submitted ourselves to God and experienced a renovation of the heart. 
Because all of us are born with spiritual hearts that drift to the left, drift away from God. What we need is to become people who live with an awe and a respect of God. Many of you know the verse in Proverbs that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How do you become a wise person? Well, it's by recognizing that you are inclined, naturally, all of us are, to live in awe of ourselves. But the only one worthy of living in awe of is God. And so, becoming a wise person is part of the process of saying, God, I want to live in respect, in obedience, in awe of you. But I've been living in awe of myself. And so would you forgive me? Would you give me a new heart? Would you help me learn to live in awe of you? If that process has never happened in your life, we'd love to tell you more about how that works. The New Testament, the latter third of the Bible, tells us a lot about it using the word the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came and became to us wisdom from God. He died in our place. He rose again in victory that all who turn from a life of awe of themselves to a life of awe of God will be given new life, will be given new hearts. Again, we'd love to tell you more about that Christ if you don't know Him. Stick around after the sermon. There's definitely somebody sitting near you who knows this Jesus, and we'll be happy to tell you more. Now, the remainder of the chapter sets to lay out wisdom and folly and gives a whole bunch of loosely connected proverbs that are bound together thematically. And the point in all of those themes is to introduce us to ideas that will show us a wise way of life versus a foolish way of life. And so what I want to do is tell you, okay, here's a block of verses and what they're largely about, and then read them. And some of these blocks I'll make a few comments about. Some of them I'm, I'm wise enough to know at this point in my life, it's better for you to think about them uh, than me to try to take in one sermon <laughs> and explain all of them. But again, note some of them that you want to go back to and spend more time on. All right? So look at uh, verses 4 through 7. These verses teach that we must use wisdom when we interact with authorities, especially governmental authorities. So verse 4, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, don't leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it was an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich set in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking around the ground like slaves. Now that makes almost no sense at all to us because what's described in 6 and 7 seems like wasn't that exactly what you'd want. But what he's describing is a whole society being undone by the foolish decisions of a foolish leader. Friend, do you realize that if somebody in authority makes bad decisions, 
even just one really bad big one, then that can have the effect of producing chaos in all of society. Do you know that rulers have that kind of power, of authority? You should, because this is not something we're not unexperienced with. This is something we face in our own day. As we try to understand and live in the chaos of 2021, then we've got to be people who are wise, people who are not foolish. Now, verses 8 through 11 teach that we must use wisdom in our work. And the work that's going to be described is going to seem incredibly weird. You may even laugh out loud. Verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it. This is describing uh, a trapper. So, somebody who dug pits, covered them deceptively so that animals who can't come along would fall into them. The passage means if you're not careful at work and you're a pit digger, then you're going to end up falling in your own pit. Now, how embarrassing would that be? Uh, the rest of that verse says, a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt, now that's not talking about one of these, an iron for your clothes. It means an iron like iron in a tool. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one succeed. Now the strangest one, if the serpent bites before it's charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Well, that's good to know. All of these examples are examples of common jobs in the ancient world, in this part of the world. And the point in all of them is, if you're going to have joy in your job, a job that sometimes meets unexpected outcomes that you didn't deserve, then how are you not going to come undone by them? What's well, going to be by working with wisdom? That's essentially what those verses mean. Now, verses 12 through 15, I think, in our own day, may be the most important because these verses are all about speech. If there's a principle way that folly is showing itself today, it is in words. The amount of words cast, shared, proclaimed, tweeted is astronomical. And many of them are not wise words. They're foolish words. And unfortunately, the church, Big C, is pretty high on the list of people broadcasting things that are actually pretty foolish. So listen to what it says, verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. Friends, when you speak, do you find that there's a graciousness about it? Do you find that your speech flavors the conversation with a little bit of salt, makes it taste better. 
Or are your words more like the rest of the passage? The lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. A couple things here. Foolish people talk a lot. Now, that doesn't mean if you don't say anything that you're automatically wise. But there is a tendency among fools to talk and talk and talk and talk, and particularly to talk about things they actually don't know what they're talking about. An example of that is given in the verse, and then it says you're talking about things in the future. Who holds the future, Ecclesiastes has been telling us? God. We don't. Therefore, we can't possibly know what's going to happen in 10 years, let alone what's going to happen tomorrow. And yet, unwise people are often adamantly proclaiming things that they don't actually know what they're talking about. If you have that tendency, the best time to stop was whenever you started. The next best time is today. The passage gives a really graphic picture of what happens if you operate that way. It says, a wise person's speech gives favor, but a foolish person gabs and gabs and gabs and gabs until your lips turn on you and swallow you up. What a picture. Friend, don't be foolish with your speech. Now, finally, verses 16 to 20 teach us that we must use wisdom in our politics. And I am just the messenger. All right? Verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child. When your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility. Meaning, he's been around, he understands, he knows what to do. And when your princes feast at the proper time, meaning his administration isn't a bunch of morons. They are disciplined and do the right thing at the right time for strength and not for drunkenness. Though sl through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter. Wine gladdens life. Money answers everything. Remember this is talking about in the realm of politics. Isn't that crazy how timely this is and how ancient it is? Verse 20, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice. Maybe that's about Twitter. Or some <laughs> winged creature tell the matter. Friends, since even a little folly can be disastrous, 
use wisdom in all areas of life. What would your family, this church, this city be like if we used wisdom in our politics, in our speech, in the way we relate to authority? Friends, it would be very different. Much more could be said about these Proverbs, but I just want to encourage you to think about a few of them in the coming week. Maybe pick one a day. And if you're a parent, then understand what Ecclesiastes is. Ecclesiastes is the words of a father to a son. And so these are quite literally words written for you, parents, to give to your sons and your daughters, to teach them wisdom. Now, in conclusion, Psalms uh, chapter 90, verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Church, if we would become people who are wise, then we must be people who have learned how to number our days. What that means is, to live in light of the fact that we're not going to live forever. If we number our days, if we're aware of the fact that we will one day die, then we will be driven and compelled, urged to make the most of every day, to maximize the enjoyment and the productivity in it, which is going to cast us on our knees to be asking God for help, to be asking God for wisdom, and Jesus is wisdom who has come to us. Christian, if you want to be wise this coming week, then you will be aware of the fact that Christ is with you, that you are in Him, that He is in you, and you will number your days to gain a heart of wisdom. Will you stand with me and let's pray? Uh, Father, this is... Uh, the kind of passage that can be difficult to, to grasp because it deals with so many different things. And yet, your Spirit can take your Word and apply it to each person exactly the way that's needed. And so I pray this week that there would be many, many times where my brothers and sisters would find themselves considering one of these Proverbs or being in a situation in which it feels like there's a lid that's been put on their joy because something disappointing has happened. And where they would turn in prayer to conversation with you to ask you for wisdom to deal with that issue in a way that honors you. We know that you're able to do this, and so we ask you to do it. And in Jesus' name we say, amen.